What do people impacted by mental illness look like? Like all of us. Mental health affects us all. We are CAP and we want to join the conversation. Sean for uh, creating the video that kind of is stolen from Bell Canada. So those of you who watch TV will know that uh, Bell is in mental health month right now as well. And doing four weeks on depression in church seems like a depressing thing to do. And so some of you may decide to come today and then you're not going to come back anymore because four weeks on depression seems extremely depressing in lots of ways. So um, we're going to look at depression through four different lenses over this month. The last Sunday, we're going to, Jan Bryant's going to talk about depression in children and youth, which I suggest to you is becoming uh, bordering on epidemic uh, that needs to be addressed pretty carefully. The second last Sunday of the month, we're going to talk about the relationship between spirituality and depression. And we're going to look at William Cowper, the hymn writer, as well as Martin Luther, uh, the theologian from history. Next week, we're going to talk about a psychological window. We're going to look at J.K. Rowling, the uh, author of uh, Harry Potter, and Robin Williams, who many of you know is one of the finest uh, comics and comedians probably we've known and committed suicide a few years ago. Um, those of you who are here and maybe don't come to church regularly and Mental Health Month attracts you, we welcome you. We're glad that you're here. We hope you find this to be a safe place on mental health. As I'll talk about in a moment, churches are not safe places on many personal subjects, including mental health. Uh, but we're glad that you're here. I want to give a shout out to my daughter, Noel, who's over there in the lovely yellow t-shirt, uh, who has great technical expertise amongst many other uh, expertise areas she has. And she was very helpful in two parts of the PowerPoint uh, today. So thank you to Noel for her contribution to today and for being here uh, back at Cap Church. One of the questions that I think we could ask is, why on earth are we spending a month on mental health in a church? Uh, these are not going to be sermons, these four talks. Uh, sermons start with the Bible, are explained in light of the Bible, and are concluded in light of the Bible. These will be more talks that will have a Christian emphasis throughout, uh, but this will not be sermonic. So, uh, but we are going to talk about mental health as a church. And I suggest to you there are four things that we need to take seriously on this subject of mental health in a church. And they are, first of all, that churches are silent on many subjects when it comes to mental health and other subjects like mental health. We don't talk about it. It's all happening to us outside the culture. It's happening to us in our homes. Uh, many of us uh, have friends, family members who struggle with mental health. Uh, we know people who struggle with mental health. Uh, lots of us struggle with mental health. People here at this church, there's lots of us who struggle with mental health. And before I did theological training, I did a PhD in clinical counseling psychology, and most of my life in Toronto was as a psychologist. Uh, so I've seen the inner life of a lot of people. And so this, uh, for if for no other reason, uh, now this is interesting. Uh, is somebody leaning on the wall back there? 
Okay. It's deeply symbolic. Uh, we're talking about depression and the lights go out. Um, one of the things I dislike about church and have for most of my 66 years is I find most people who stand at the front of churches uh, talk about things in an abstract way and act as if they don't struggle at all. Uh, I call them commitment sermons gone wild. You know, preachers who stand at the front and act as if they've got everything figured out, they know God personally, and what's your problem that you don't. Uh, so I want to be declarative, as I was last February, uh, when it comes to mental health. I have struggled most of my life with depression. Uh, often when I say that to people, they say, you do? I don't pick that up. Well, that's the nature of mental life, right? Uh, mental life is not always exposed. And so I've struggled with dysthymia, which is low-grade depression, sort of like a low-grade fever most of my life. Uh, there's a whole lot of reasons for them, some of it related to family of origin, some related to my own psyche, some related to chemical issues. There's a lot of issues involved in my own uh, struggle with depression. I've been helped by a number of issues, and I just want to note those for you, and maybe those of you who are struggling will resonate with some of this and find it helpful. First of all, I've been to many competent counselors uh, in my life uh, who have treated me in a way that goes beyond the superficial. And so that's really important. There's lots of superficial counselors around who'll give you strategies and steps and easy things to deal with. I've had some really competent counselors who've got into my inner life in a really helpful way. I have a very supportive and a very insightful spouse. Uh, some people are married to a supportive person who's not insightful. Some people are married to an insightful person who's not supportive. Uh, those of you in those kind of marriages, you know what I'm talking about. I happen to be married, thankfully, to somebody who's both supportive and insightful and takes both her inner life seriously and my inner life seriously. That's been hugely helpful in my own battle with depression. Understanding your own depression and accepting it, not approving of it necessarily, but accepting it has been really helpful for me. Uh, there were many, many years of my life, I would not say this publicly, I would not talk about it publicly, I would pretend, I would act as if I wasn't depressed, and because of my public profile, which has been extensive for most of my life, a lot of people wouldn't sniff out that I struggle with depression. So I just hid behind that. But coming to grips with it, accepting it, understanding it, has been really, really helpful. Um, over the years, I've had people in my life I can be open with because they take the inner life seriously. And if you have people around you that take the inner life seriously, it's really helpful when you battle uh, with depression. I've had some practical strategies that have been helpful in my depression through reading and listening to other people. Uh, a biblical perspective on pain and hope that takes humanness seriously has been incredibly helpful to me. I found a lot of what I've heard about the Bible extremely unhelpful, but when I understand the Bible in terms of its approach to pain and to hope and to humanness, it's been really, really helpful for me. And uh, tied in with that, recognizing that God is not confined to the spiritual. There's still lots of well-meaning Christians around who think God is confined to the spiritual. He's not interested in mental health. He's not interested in mental illness. He just wants you to read your Bible and pray and come to church. And all this mental health stuff's not relevant. Uh, that's not the God that I understand in the Bible. Um, this is a hard thing to say publicly. And many times in the last week, I was going to drop this point because it sounds rude. I don't mean it as rude. I'm just trying to be honest. I do try to avoid as much as possible highly spiritual Christians. 
Um, that's going to make some of you paranoid uh, in this church because we're part of the same body. But, and it's not always possible to avoid highly spiritual Christians. It's not always appropriate to avoid highly spiritual Christians. But my experience over many, many decades has been highly spiritual Christians are really unhelpful to me in my depression. And often when I'm with highly unspiritual Christians, I'm more depressed after. Uh, so in spite of all the high spirituality, it's not helpful for me at all. Medication has been extremely helpful for me. I took my little pink pill this morning. I take it every morning. And my Effexor doesn't solve all of my problems with depression but it certainly helps a lot with my depression and with my moods. And lastly, any of you who read in this area or have been for counseling in this area or understand this area, know depression is a very mysterious and very complex thing. It's not straightforward. And when you recognize that, you're not caught into this thing that, well, if I'm sort of simple about it or I have a simple solution, it will all be solved. Uh, Depression is not like that. So let's talk about the culture a little bit, and I want to talk about Canada first of all. The stats in Canada would suggest that 20% of Canadians, it's not North American stats, not US stats, Canadians, 20% of Canadians will experience mental illness at some point in their life. Uh, Those of you are a little paranoid and you haven't experienced it yet and you're thinking, oh my goodness, it's coming, that may be true, it may be coming, but 20% in Canada. And it's interesting to me, when you think of the social problems and social issues we discuss now, and the things that occupy our attention and the things that we'd want to talk a lot about, even in church, some of those don't reach the standard of 20%, but mental illness does. This week, 500,000 people that's a half a million people, will not go to work because of mental illness. It's a massive statistic. If you do the the economic and socioeconomic analysis, $51 billion is spent annually in Canada around issues related to mental health. And this startling statistic, 11 people every day in Canada die from suicide. Now, the rates of attempted suicide far surpass that, But people are successful, and I use that word in quotes, people are successful in committing suicide. So when you go to bed tonight, just reflect on that. 11 people today in Canada will have killed themselves. Now the cultural response to all of this is interesting. And I think Bell Canada, if you watch TV and have watched these ads, they've picked up on some of these attitudes. The cultural attitudes towards mental illness in Canada are interesting to reflect on. And I want to talk first of all about surface attitudes that avoid the inner life. Because in many ways, if we're going to deal with our own mental illness and we're going to deal with the mental illness of other people, we have to be committed to going into the inner life. If we stay superficial, And if we stay on the surface, we're not going to be able to deal with mental illness. If you have a family member, you have a friend, uh, you have somebody that's close to, maybe it's you yourself, that's struggling with mental illness, you will not have much impact if you stay on the surface and don't go to the inner life. And so these phrases, which, you know, are typical, all of us have people like this in our lives, the ought people and the should people, right? Like, you want to do this, you should do this. And they have their list of favorite things that they think is going to be helpful. It was helpful to me, it was helpful to my friend, you should try this, you ought to do this. I I wish the word just was expunged from contemporary vocabulary. Everything's just now. Like, just do this and just do that. So I've been struggling for 50 years and you come along and say, just do this. And they're like, oh, thank you, I've just ruined 50 years of my life and you've given me a simple solution. Just do this. Um, That doesn't really address it. If people would only, like when you hear the stats, like 20% of people in Canada, uh, some people say, well, if people would only just go to bed earlier, you know, everything would be fine. Well, it's not quite that simple. 
mental illness. It's got a lot more complexity to it than that. And then the last one, and we all have friends like this, have you ever tried? Have you ever tried? Have you ever tried? And they have their favorite thing. You know, they have a favorite chiropractor that works on mental illness. And it's like, have you ever tried my chiropractor? It's like, no, chiropractors don't do mental illness. Uh, No, I haven't tried your chiropractor. So those kind of things. And then, of course, this phrase, which in the early 2000s has crept into contemporary culture, uh, the phrase, it is what it is. It is what it is. And it's interesting that this phrase has crept into contemporary culture over the last sort of 15 to 18 years. And some people use this phrase excessively. It's banned in our house. We don't use that phrase. We're not allowed. But if you've been reading up on this phrase, and I love contemporary language and and contemporary uses of terms, there's a whole lot of articles right now that are using a highly technical word to describe the phrase, it is what it is, and the word is stupid. Uh, This is just a stupid phrase. And one of the reasons it's a stupid phrase is because because it's a tautology. And any of you study literature or grammar or, lit- or any kind of uh, explanation of how language works, it's considered faulty style because it's saying the same thing twice. Like to say it is and then say it is what it is is to say the same thing again. It makes no sense. It's a complete contradiction. Now, of course, the interesting thing with the phrase it is what it is is it has a style of resigned resignation. Something really awful is happening. Well, it is what it is. And one of the problems when we approach mental illness with it is what it is, or my own mental illness with it is what it is, is we get into the trap of thinking I can't do anything about it. It's kind of I'm just resigned to it. And sometimes we do it on ourselves. I was talking to a friend of mine recently who's in a, a long, been in a job for a long number of years as a leader and got fired. And I know this person fairly well, and we were discussing the, uh, about the firing, and I got all the details of how it happened and what was said and what was communicated and when the job's over and all the rest of it. And I said to the person who was saying they got fired, so, like, how are you feeling about this? It is what it is. And of course, the phrase it is what it is when we say it to ourselves is cuts the inner life right out. I have no clue what my friend is going through about the firing. All I know is my friend was fired. That's all I know. I've had the same experience in the reverse way of saying to somebody, you know, because of this and because of this and because of this and because of this, I struggle with depression. And sometimes the response back is it is what it is. And part of that is when we do it on ourselves, what we're saying is, I've got this really painful thing in my life, I can feel the emotion coming up with the pain, and if I say it is what it is, then I can just shove it back down again. And if somebody else comes with their inner struggle, and we say, well, it is what it is, then they shove it back down as well. So the phrase, it is what it is, strikes me as one of those contemporary phrases like just, or have you tried, or you ought to do this, or you should do this. It doesn't take the inner life seriously. And if we're going to deal with mental illness, we need to take the inner life seriously. Now, let's go more broadly about the culture. We in the church are very, very poor at understanding the culture. It's been one of my irritations being a Christian for many years. When you exist in the culture and you live in the culture, as many of you do, and then sometimes, not this church necessarily, but many churches that I've been in, you come to church and you think, people in the church talk about the culture like they have no clue what's going on. Like everything's divided into sin and holiness. So like in the church, we do holiness, and out there, they do sin. 
and it's kind of, that's the end of the story. Like, we've got it all figured out. Well, those of you who are in the workplace, in the marketplace, in tune with your neighborhood, like to go out there tomorrow in your workplace and say, well, I got all this figured out, it's all sin, like, it's not very helpful. And when we try to understand mental illness in the culture, and when we try to understand what's going on more broadly in the culture, we need to push in and say, what is the heartbeat in the culture? What are, what are the things that people are struggling with? Why are 20% of Canadians going to struggle with mental illness? Why are 500,000 people this week not going to go to work because of mental illness? Why is $51 billion being spent and I want to suggest to you, and I'm, this is not, I trust, simplistic, but in an attempt to be simple for this morning, it seems to me there's three threads going on in the culture right now. The one is the pursuit of happiness. And I identify with that, and I hope you do too. Like, it's not like we in the church, we're trying to, we're trying to be holy, and out there people are trying to be happy. I want to be happy too. Like, I want to have happy days. I want to feel good. Um, I want to have happy experiences, and I want to pursue happiness. And if you actually reflect on the culture, often what's going on in the culture is people are doing things and experiencing things and pursuing things because they want to be happy. And there's nothing wrong with that. And it's interesting in the literature, there's a whole massive amount of literature now on the pursuit of happiness and what the pursuit of happiness looks like and how we can pursue happiness and the ways we can pursue happiness. So that's a thread in the culture. The other thread in the culture, captured really well in the phrase, it is what it is, is the avoidance of hurt. Most people out there, as well as most people in here, don't like pain. We don't like hurt. We don't like struggles. We don't like suffering. We don't like anguish. We would prefer to be happy. And so we live with this kind of duality. It's almost like they're, they're in conflict with one another. On the one hand, I want to pursue happiness, but on the other hand, there's all this hurt that comes into my life, and I want to avoid the hurt. And I'm living in this weird back and forth. It almost feels like in a boxing ring, you're sort of banged against the ropes on this side, wanting to be happy, and then you're banged against the ropes on this side, wanting to avoid hurt. But have you listened in the culture? Some of you are working with somebody right now, and you can pick this up when you talk with them. In the pursuit of happiness and in the avoidance of pain, there's a desire for hope. A desire for hope. There's a, there's a wish that, like, what can make me confident? Some of you may have heard this uh, newscast yesterday, a powerful interview I listened to on the radio yesterday when I was in the car of this, I think, a grade 11-year-old girl in Sweden who's looked at climate change and has looked at global warming and looked at the environmental degradation and basically has said, there will be no future for us, and so we're walking out of school. And all these kids in Sweden now have started to walk out of school and have said, in light of the Paris Accord and some of the nonsense that's going on there, to say, we don't have a future. There is no future for us, so let's just walk out of school. What's the point of going to school if there's going to be no planet for us? Now, as a 66-year-old, I look at that and think, oh, come on. Like, come on, pull yourself together. It is what it is. You know, like, that's what I want to say. But that's her experience. And now it's spreading. And now it's going around the world. I spoke of the Regent College graduate. You know, people from Regent College are supposed to be, you know, they know the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit intimately. I was talking to a Regent College graduate just recently, and the despair was off the scale. Why was the despair off the scale? He said to me, as we sat over breakfast, he looked at me and he said, you know what? When I get to your age, there will be no planet. He said, what's the point? 
there's no hope. There's no hope. And as we'll talk about next week, one of the characteristics of depression is the absence of hope. When I'm in my dips, it feels hopeless. That's what it feels like. And so when we look at the culture, rather than saying, we're holy, they're sinful, we're doing the right thing, we're with God, they're doing the wrong thing, they're just trying to be happy. No, there's a thread of pursuing happiness. There's a thread of avoiding hurt. And then underneath both of them is this desire for hope in a culture that's despairing. Now, how do we sniff this out? Well, one of the ways we sniff this out is contemporary music. And so we're going to listen to two contemporary songs. Uh, The first one, probably everyone in this room knows. And if you're tempted to stand up and dance and move and raise your hands and everything else, feel free to do that. No one's looking. Uh, You can do that if you want. The second one, probably you don't know as, as well. But the first one by Pharrell Williams, simply entitled Happy. And the second song by 21 Pilots, entitled Screen. So you're going to listen to Happy, and then you're going to listen to Screen, and then we're going to have some discussion, as in little groups around this. And here's what I want you to listen for. The first one will be fun, right? And hopefully you'll smile and laugh and jump. And those of you are like highly spiritual, like just put that aside for a moment. Move a little bit. It's okay. You can do that. I know it's not a hymn and all the rest of it, but that's fine. Um, listen in these two songs for the pursuit of happiness, the avoidance of hurt, and the desire for hope. Pharrell Williams, happy. It might seem crazy what I'm about to say.
Let me encourage you with a couple of people around you. What do you hear about happiness, hurt, and hope in these two songs? Chat with your neighbor for a few moments and I'll call you back. Okay, let me pull you back again. A little piece of the culture is in this room, right? The notion that, you know, the church is made up of Christians and then the culture is out there is a bad way to talk about things. This is a little piece of the culture, but if I had the chance to speak to the whole culture about these two songs, here's the three things I would want to say. First of all, having happiness does not guarantee hope. And by the same token, by the same token, having pain does not mean that you have no hope. And so for a culture that can easily believe that pursuing happiness will be the answer to the future and pursuing happiness will get us through indefinitely, sometimes that can be hopeless because happiness can dissipate really quickly. I don't know what your response is. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But if you let me listen to these two songs, I've listened to a number of contemporary songs that are kind of on depression and suicide and sort of the negativity that's going on in the culture. And if you said to me, which of these two songs brings you the most hope? Categorical 21 Pilots screen. Ironically, the presence of pain is greater in the 21 Pilots screen song screen 
than it is in Farrell Williams' uh, uh, <laughs> happy, <laughs> psychological gap there. Um, there's no pain, and in fact, there's an avoidance of pain in the happy song, but if you said which one's more hopeful, that refrain, we're broken, we're broken, we're broken, that gives me more hope because it feels like we're dealing with reality. So that's the first thing I would say to the culture. The second thing I would say to the culture is those of us who are pointed towards God come at this differently. Those of us who are pointed towards God come at this differently. It's not like those who, I grew up in this kind of a church where if you were happy, you clearly weren't Christian, right? And if you looked around our church, everyone looked like they were in major clinical depression, but that was called righteousness, right? So some of you grew up in those kind of churches too. Everyone looked glum and depressed and took effects six times a day, Uh, but that was really godly. You know, it was sort of a godly look, and if anyone was happy, that was clearly not of God. Well, Christians can be happy, Right? We can be happy. There's not, if we're pointed towards God, it's not like, there should be no happiness in the life of the Christian. Like, no, of course, we have times of happy. We also have times when we're down and we're in despair and we're feeling really awful. When you're pointed towards God, you ask more questions about the nature of hope. You ask different questions about the nature of hope. And you recognize that falling back on God and all he provides is the place where we get hope. And so the presence of happiness or the avoidance of hurt is not the Christian posture. The Christian posture seems to me is whether we are in happiness or we are in hurt that we start asking questions about hope. And then lastly, whether our mental health is good or bad, we are invited to consider the source of our hope. What's at the core of it? What's the basis of it? My struggle with clinical depression Uh, One of the things that happens for me when I go into a bad space with that, and I have those dips periodically, I feel like all hope is gone. And then I start looking for hope. And sometimes I look out and I don't see much hope. Sometimes I hang around really spiritual people, I don't find much hope. Sometimes I hang around Christians, I don't find much hope. Sometimes I look inside, I don't find much hope. And it forces me to ask the question, where do I go for hope? when I feel hopeless. Not as a solution, because it seems to me one of the great strengths of the 21 Pilots song is that this is not a solution-oriented song. It's a recognition that in the presence of brokenness and in the presence of pain, you're still looking for hope, but the hope doesn't get rid of the pain and make you happy. And if all the people in this room who struggle with clinical depression stood up and, and we spoke to this, we would all say the same thing. You can be happy without hope, and you can be hurt with hope. You can be in pain with hope and without hope, and you can be in happiness with hope and without hope. Now, it seems to me the best place for us to go to really understand this is to go to the experience of Job. It's a big book. There's lots of details in the book, but let me just talk uh, two passages very briefly. First of all, from Job uh, chapter 6, verses 8 and 11, and then from Job chapter 8, verses 13 to 15. When Job went through his terrible anguish, physical, mental health, all kinds of things were going on for him, he made this statement. And listen to his use of the word hope. He said, oh, that I might have my request that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me to let loose his hand and cut me off. We talk about praying sometimes. That was the prayer. And what does the prayer say? That even when you're with God, and even when you're seeking to walk with God, and seeking to be pointed towards God, sometimes it feels hopeless. 
Can you feel the poignancy of the question he asks in verse 11? What strength do I have that I should still hope? I find that passage deeply encouraging as somebody who struggles with depression. Because what it says to me is, when you're struggling with depression, God is not like out of the picture, but you really struggle with him. And you know he's going to bring you hope. And it's in the anguish of trying to get hope from God in the midst of your depression where it's really hard. And you ask the question, what strength do I have that I should still hope? I I can't find any hope. And it's interesting, as you know, Job's friends often gave really bad advice or were deeply insensitive and talked when they should have been listening. And they had no empathy or no understanding. But Bildad, imagine calling your baby Bildad, uh, Bildad at one point came to Job in Job chapter 8, verses 13 to 15, and he said this, and listen to the power of this language from one of Job's friends. Such is the destiny of all who forget God. So perishes the hope of the godless. What they trust in is fragile. What they rely on is a spider's web. They lean on the web, but it gives way. They cling to it, but it does not hold. Isn't that a powerful metaphor of the nature of hope? Because one of the things you realize in the culture is if you put your hope on something that's like a spider web, it'll just collapse underneath you and you'll be disappointed. How many of of us are disappointed because we put our hope in the wrong thing? We put our hope in spider webs. And Job's whole experience does not say, if you get this all figured out, the hope thing, you won't struggle with depression. The whole message is, Even in the struggle with depression, even in the struggle with that inner anguish, I can seek out hope and I can cry for hope. Now, I want to leave you as my final point with a painting. Just look at that painting for a few moments. In the 1800s, there was a couple, last name Watts, W-A-T-T-S, who'd been exposed to George Frederick Handel, Uh, the musician who wrote The Messiah, and they decided to call their son George Frederick Watts. And he became a Victorian painter. And in 1885, Watts painted this picture. This is an old picture, 1885. And Watts' whole approach to painting was not to be a literalist, And not to be an abstract painter, but what he said about his art was, I paint ideas. That's what I do. It's an interesting contradiction. Like, you paint an idea? Like, isn't an idea a cognitive thing? Isn't it a sort of a thing in your thoughts and in your brain? He said, I paint ideas. That's what I do. And so he painted this picture in 1885. And people were interested in the picture, but what really threw them was the title of the picture. You know what the title is? Hope. Now, I don't know what it's like for you, but when I look at this, you know, this bluey gray sort of dull background, like those of us who struggle with depression, this is kind of our favorite color right here, right? It's kind of flat and not very exciting, not very vibrant. There's no colors in this that are dynamic and alive. It seems so heavy. And look at the earth that this woman is sitting on. It's dark. It's dull. A lot of it's in literal darkness, and this stuff over here is yeah, just seems really, really dull. And she's in this posture. Look at this posture, right? And, and if you battle depression, 
And if you battle mental illness, isn't that often how you feel? You just if you feel hunched. Sometimes some of us walk that way because we're so weary and so overwhelmed. And, and she's bent over in this posture that looks so terrible. And she's blindfolded, like she can't see. So not only is the world around her bad, but she can't even see the world around her. Like it's just this very, like if somebody said, George Frederick Watts painted this picture in 1885 and it's called despair, I would go, well, <laughs> you know, duh, of course, <laughs> obviously, like that's a great, but it's called hope. Why is it called hope? And this is not easy to see in an auditorium this size, and my apologies to those of you listening online, but this is a lyre, it's a musical instrument, and these are strings. Strings coming down from the lyre. And all of these strings are broken except one. And she's leaning in with one ear to listen to the one string. And it's very hard to see this, but can you see that one star just above the green? Some of you can see it if you're up close. It's hard to see. One little star shining. I find that, I've looked at all kinds of art all my life, I'm married to an artist, so whether I want to be into art or not, it's part of my lot in life to be into art a lot. We've been to lots of galleries, lots of museums. That is the most encouraging picture that I have ever seen. Because I struggle with depression. And this is how I feel a lot of the time. This is how the world seems a lot of the time. This is how my emotions are at times. This is even physically how I'm at times when I'm alone. But I'm trying to listen for that one little piece of music on the one string. Even in the midst of the despair. Not simplistically, not as a little strategy, not as an immediate solution. Not all of us who are struggling with depression are going to walk out of here and be healed. But in the midst of the despair there is hope.